Hey, Art Party listeners. I'm going to be doing something a little bit different for a few of the episodes that we have coming up. Um, as you may or may not know, the website Lit Reactor is closing down at the end of 2023. And uh, for a little bit of time, I did some of their podcast hosting. So there's about six episodes of Lit Reactor's unprintable podcast that were uh, hosted by me. And when that website shuts down, there will be no more content available from that website, which includes the podcast uh, feed. So I reached out to them and I said, hey, what do you think about me hosting the episodes that I made on Arc Party? And that way they would still be available for people to listen to if they wanted to as kind of an archival effort. Lit Reactor responded enthusiastically to the idea, obviously. Um, we want to do our best to keep content in the world as much as possible. And so um, what I'm doing is just uh, keeping these pretty much word for word what happened in the original episode with just a little bumper uh, introduction of me telling you uh, what's going on. So for this specific episode, uh, I am bringing you the interview episode with Alma Katsu that was published originally December 28th, 2021. In this episode, we discuss her book, Red Widow, which was new at the time, and her book, The Fervor, which was soon to be released uh, the spring of 2022. I am joined by Rob Hart from Lit Reactor as a co-host on this episode, and it is a fantastic discussion with Alma. If you have not read her books, I highly recommend that you do. She's an incredible author of historical horror and a very well-informed author of espionage stories as well. So without further ado, here is my original interview episode with Alma Katsu from Lit Reactor, published back in December of 2021. Okay, welcome everybody listening. This is Unprintable, the Lit Reactor podcast, and I'm your host, Rob Olson. Today I'm joined by Lit Reactor class director Rob Hart as well as author Alma Katsu. Alma joined us to talk about her recent book, Red Widow, and all of the things that have developed around that, as well as her upcoming book for the spring, The Fervor. In our discussion, we dive right in first to talking a lot about Red Widow, espionage, Alma's experience in the intelligence community, and how that informed writing a very accurate, realistic, authentic story. We also discuss how the book is being developed for television and how there are subsequent novels in the works as well. Then we're going to jump over to the fervor. And because we dive right into uh, a lot of the elements of the book and don't explain the story much, I'm going to provide a quick synopsis before we get into the episode so that the listeners will understand the book that we're talking about uh, a little bit better. 1944, as the World War II rages on, the threat has come to the home front. In a remote corner of Idaho, Mako Briggs and her daughter, daughter Iko are desperate to return home. Following Mako's husband's enlistment as an Air Force pilot in the Pacific months prior, Mako and Iko were taken from their home in Seattle and sent to one of the internment camps in the Midwest. It didn't matter that Iko was American-born. They were Japanese and therefore considered a threat by the American government. Mother and daughter attempt to hold on to elements of their old life in the camp when a mysterious disease begins to spread among those interned. What starts as a minor cold quickly becomes spontaneous fits of violence and aggression, even death. And when the disconcerting team of doctors arrive, nearly more threatening than the illness itself, Mako and her daughter team up with a newspaper reporter and a widowed missionary to investigate, and it becomes clear to them that something more sinister is afoot a demon from the stories of Mako's childhood 
hellbent on infiltrating their already strange world. Okay, I'll just say that this was a wonderful conversation that we had, and I'm really excited for you to hear it. So without further ado, here is the unprintable interview with Alma Katsu. Alma, thank you so much for joining us. To get started, we're about to drill you with a bunch of questions about books that we are just so excited about. But um, would you mind just really quick giving our listeners a little uh, little bio about yourself? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you both so much for having me here. I'm super excited. I've just been like nervous all day. Um, I'm Alma Katsu. I'm the author of six books. Most of them have to do with history and some combination of like the, the supernatural or horror. I'm probably in that vein best known for The Hunger, which came out a few years ago, which was a reimagining of the story of the Donner Party. But my most recent book is nothing like those. And it's really confusing some bookstores and some readers, but it's an espionage novel called Red Widow. And it's sort of, it's a contemporary um, spy thriller that's told from the perspective of a woman and really looks at what it's like to work in the intelligence business as a, as a woman. And um, both me and Rob have had a, an opportunity to uh, read it, and we both really enjoyed it. So I'm sure we're going to go nuts on that. Um, uh, just a great book. Uh, and, and I love the idea of the fact that you're drawing on your experience, your your vast experience in the intelligence community for that as well. Thank you so much. Yes, 30. Uh, we waffle on the years because I had such a weird career when I was going sort of in and out of working for the federal government, but about 35, career, 35 years in all. Uh, and I never know if people are going to go, yay, or boo, uh, NSA <laughs> for about 25 of those years and the rest of it is CIA. This is Oh, I'm going to get this out of the way really quick because um, Alma and I have, have talked about this in the past. Um, I, you know, as, as to, to address the idea of that hesitancy from a general public kind of perspective or how people feel about intelligence. Um, I, I was your average kid, but I, I have an aunt and uncle who uh, did, I think, 30 years so far in the NSA. And so um it is so interesting to talk to someone who is actually in intelligence and see, um, you know, a perspective that's different than what just the kind of distrusting public might naturally um, come to, uh, to arrive at. And um, my aunt and uncle have just given me such a cool, uh, enthusiastic perspective about how there's so much, you know, to that, you know, that type of work that um, we're, you know, we're just, we don't, have the benefit of the perspective of. Well, the funny part too is, you know, the different agencies are so different. So having been at CIA, you get a totally different perspective than when you're at NSA. NSA is known as, you know, never say anything. Um, that it's just drilled into your head from the first day. And I, I think it's changed now, but when I went on, when I joined them, which was in the early 80s, you couldn't even say that you worked for NSA. You had to say Defense Department, which just got a lot of snickers from people in the area because they all knew that that meant NSA, right? It was a terrible cover. But it's that that secrecy is so much more so at NSA than at CIA. So just going through that uh, in my career was a really interesting experience because at CIA, you're allowed to be more open. I even spent a year as a recruiter. So I was openly talking to lots and lots of people all across the country about, you know, what it's like to work there and, and to see their reactions. But especially in the last, ever since Edward Snowden, especially, you know, NSA, is, <laughs> they're, um, you know, public faces, they're just really taking it on the chin. Yeah, nobody seems to want you to show up 
at anywhere. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the thing that I'm honestly like kind of curious about, like right off the bat is, um, you know, you, you worked at these agencies for, for 30-ish years, like how much can you tell us about what you did? Or, or is it basically like, I worked there and that's pretty much all I can tell you. So having done that year in recruiting actually was extremely helpful because you have to speak publicly. I got a really good sense of where that line is. What are the things you can talk about and what you can't talk about? So, you know, and, and age brings a lot of perspective too. when you're young, you're just scared to death that you're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to be caught and you're going to take your badge away and take your job away and maybe even throw you in prison. But when you get older, you see there's actually a lot you can talk about. The, the things they don't want you to talk about are what we call sources and methods. And that is how we do our job and where we're actually getting our information from. That's usually on the other side of the line. So, you know, I can talk generally about the types of things I did. I did have an amazing career. I'll say that, you know, I grew up in a very small town in Massachusetts from a very unworldly family. I never, never thought I would go into intelligence. I was not interested in foreign affairs or, you know, poli science or any of that stuff. Um, I was a writer. <laughs> you know, I had my degrees are in English, but they just happened to need writers at the time. And they figured they could teach you the rest. And all that's changed. They would never hire someone like me <laughs> these days. But I really lucked out. And so I was able to have a incredible career doing all kinds of crazy things I never thought I'd be able to do. It was very heavy in the math and science field for some reason. Um, like the last 10 years of my career has all been in emerging technologies. And I still advise the government and private industry on, um, you know, new technologies and what their likely impacts are. And I do tech forecasting. I never thought I'd do that as an English major, right? <laughs> it just goes to show you, you never know what life has in store for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. so, so we established that, you know, you, you were writing a certain type of novel and then you decided to write an espionage novel. So, so what was it that kind of finally got you to the point where you were like, okay, now it's time for me to explore this from a fictional lens. Part of it was just having more confidence in my ability as a writer. So the whole time, uh, you know, my first book, The Taker, <laughs> which is nothing like Red Widow, right? If people read those two books, one right after the other, they're going to go, this is insane. That is not the same author. But um, it took 10 years for me to get that book to the point where it was saleable. All during that time, and I was working at CIA, I think, for the most part, NSA part-time, part of that time, CIA. And um, I kept thinking I should write a spy novel. And, you know, when I was at the program at Hopkins, you do get to talk to agents and editors a little bit. And they all said the same thing. You know, this taker thing, that's okay. But why aren't you writing a spy novel? So I would try and they got nowhere because they were terrible. <laughs> I mean, I didn't really, I they tell you the same thing, right? The, the editors are like, um, you know, with your background, you probably could write a great spy novel. We want to know what it's really like. So you write a book about what it's really like. And they're like, this is boring. <laughs> one of them said to me, no one wants to read a book about a person doing their job. So I stopped writing them and I just thought, okay, it's not in me. I, you know, for whatever reason, I'm censoring myself or I just can't let my imagination take over. But then it was right around the time I retired and I was having a meeting with Sally Kim, who's my editor at Putnam. 
And she had mentioned that um, she was really sad that the Americans was about to go into their final season and that she really liked espionage stories that had that sort of personal domestic component, you know, the lives of the spies. Or, um, and I said, because I'm no fool, I said, I can write that for you. <laughs> so I said, give me a week and I'll get your proposal. And I'd always had in the back of my mind that if I ever had the chance to write a spy novel, there are some things that I think don't get represented well in popular culture, whether it's TV, movies, or books. And that is what the personal demands really are on you when you're doing this line of work. And, um, you know, not that we're not compensated for it, not that, like I said, it's not a really interesting job and that should be, you know, some kind of reward in itself. But, but it is different. It, it does have different demands on you. And, and we can go into some of that if you're interested. But I thought it would be interesting to really show what it's like. It's not all running in heels with martinis, right? And then um, the other thing is, I don't think women are very well represented in uh, spy fiction, uh, particularly contemporary fiction. There's just not a lot of, con- you know, set in the present day stories about women who are in the intelligence profession. And uh, there's a lot of historicals, World War II era, for instance, where, you know, not only were spy agencies for the United States, at least kind of new, but the idea of women working them in a professional capacity was very new. So I can, I can understand why that's an appeal, but it doesn't really, you know, the women who work in it today won't recognize themselves in those books. And I can say this because I'm really old and I've actually worked with a couple of the old legends, <laughs> um, you know, in their last days, in my early days. And they're wonderful women, but, but what they did then and how they were kind of sidelined after the war too, um, you know, it doesn't represent some of the, like I say, some of the best um, officers I worked with and some of the best managers I worked with in the intelligence community were women. And I just wanted to see us represented more. And then after the book came out and I had a lot of conversations with folks like yourselves, sometimes with other former intelligence people, and it, you know, it all kind of, kind of dawned on us that, you know, a lot of the women were the most professional too. Like the ones who did stupid ass things. And I got like, you know, in Red Widow, there's a, the kernel of the story is about um, a senior manager who basically lets his arrogance get away from him. Oh my God. That's like almost every man, you know, manager that I <laughs> that is based on a true story. That is based on a real person. <laughs> this is raising so many interesting paths to go down. Um, well, I mean, so, and the first one is is the thing that's really interesting is when you said you tried a couple of times and, and people thought they were kind of boring. Um, you know, uh, so, and, and I think like readers have like a general sense that like, like they think spy, they think James Bond. You know, like I did, I did my take on a spy novel, uh, The Woman from Prague, which was like, it had like a Spetsnaz assassin and like all the, these crazy fight scenes and all this ridiculous shit. And the thing that, that, yeah. And then, and then I remember reading the Shanghai factor by Charles McCarry and McCarry was a, he, he was CIA, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember reading that it was like mostly just people talking in rooms and yet it was like completely thrilling and engaging because he was writing with that lived in experience. And that was, that was the thing that, that I experienced while I was reading Red Widow. It's, it's like, there's no like explosions or car chases or any of this crazy stuff. It's just like this constant sense of like almost dread because like, you know, there's this crazy stuff going on. You don't have the full picture. And so, 
you know, it was it was so exciting to read. Um, oh, so much without it being like this crazy bombastic thing, and and that's the thing that really appealed to me. So I guess it's like it's interesting to to, to kind of do that where 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 you're taking a job that I guess like at the end of the day, you know, it's a lot of office politics. But those politics kind of blow out into a much, much bigger way, you know, with like, you know, international ramifications. Yes. I mean, that that part of it, the whole, you know, that it, it is in a way this nest of vipers, this, you know, hall of mirrors and smoke that you have to navigate internally. And I understand a lot of other businesses. So, for instance, you know, the it's being made into a TV series by Fox. And so I'm dealing with Hollywood for the first time in my life. And they're impressing on me, like, how similar this is to what it's like to work in the TV business, you know, the nest of vipers in the hall of smoke and mirrors. So I understand it's not singular to the intelligence community, but it, it really is. Around, I mean, and that's one of the things, too, when I started working at CIA, I it's so different from NSA. And believe me, NSA has its problems. But at CIA, you know, what most people think of when they think of CIA is the clandestine service. That's the people who go out there in the field and they recruit the foreigners who have the information, you know, the access to the secrets that the United States needs. You know, that's the spy everybody thinks of. But there's actually a bunch of different jobs that have to be done at CIA. But the clandestine service really rules. So what they're doing is they're training this core of people to be ace manipulators, to be the best manipulators in the world. Because basically what they're doing is they're trying to convince somebody to do something that's really not in their best interest, right? The person who's going to be the asset has their reasons why they want to do it. A lot of times it's money. Sometimes it's ideology. A lot of times it's ideology and money. But um, but they're going to be controlled and handled by the case officer, the handler, right? So that's the training these guys get. And most of these people are very ethical, right, and don't want to cross that line, but sometimes they do. And so a lot of us at CIA, I mean, that's part of what also drove Red Widow is I had the experience when I had one of these case officers who was just like a shark. <laughs> and he, if he, his attention swiveled on you, he was going to destroy you like a shark. And I went through that. This is one of the guys that was PNG'd from Italy. He was involved in the rendition program. He was not a nice guy. I mean, just something inside of him got broken at some point, and he had been trained to be like a world-class manipulator. It's a nightmare <laughs> having to work with someone like that. And and he's not the only one. So there's that aspect of it. I don't want to make it sound too bad, right? Because there's still <laughs> a lot of wonderful things in there, but you do have like these world-class sharks that you have to deal with sometimes. I, f I feel like a lot of the... Um from what I remember of like the tension of the book for me was, was somewhat of that interpersonal play between um, colleagues or the people that were involved in the story where it, it is a very personal thing in certain points, especially with like, you know, a woman whose husband was ostensibly lost. And so it almost seems like you did a, for me, you did a great job of taking the perspective of like your life can be leveraged against what the priority of the situation is from an internal perspective, but also from like the people that you're recruiting to get your information and stuff. So there was a really, I thought threaded through the book, a really good interplay of how the kind of, um, uh, the goal or outcome could compromise your, your personal situation as someone in the situation or, or, or someone involved in the situation. 
And well, I, I thought that was great. Yeah. Thank you so much. I can't tell you after the book came out, I got so many emails and stuff from um, old colleagues saying, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, you really captured <laughs> what it's like to work there <sighs> for better or for worse. Yeah. <laughs> is there a is there any kind of like vetting process that you have to go through? Like, did you have to go to the CIA, CIA and NSA and be like, guys, I wrote a book like you want to read it and make sure everything's OK? There is. One of the first things that happen when you get your security clearance is you have to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. And you sign it and it, you agree that for the rest of your life, you will allow the agency or agencies to uh, review anything that you intend to publish. Now, and, and they are supposed to look at it for certain things. Um, I can go into so much detail on this. It will, <laughs> it will just bore you to tears. The short answer is yes, they do. And um, the way it works now is for people like me who work for multiple agencies, you just submit it to one agency and then they make the decision whether or not the other agency needs to look at it, which would really increase the aggregation factor like by a million. Luckily, CIA did said, no, NSA doesn't need to see it. Yay. And uh, they passed it. They didn't ask for one change. Oh, wow. Oh, I know. Awesome. It's a miracle. Yeah, that's where my mind went first is like, you've worked for multiple agencies. Do you have to go through that process each time? So that's, I'm glad that um, you did that rigmarole got, got avoided at least. Yeah. A lot of my um, former NSA colleagues are like, when are you going to write a book about NSA? And I'm like, when they get their pre-publication act together, there's no way, <laughs> no way I'd slip my wrist first. It, it would be so painful. That's a uh, that's so cool that it's um in development for TV. Um, you know, are they are they involving you in the process at all, or is it one of those things that it's like, okay, you guys take the ball, go run with it? They are involving me in the process. I'm an executive producer. I'm not even sure what my role is. I think they just want to run things by me to see if it's too egregious or if they're having a hard time coming up with an idea for how to make something work. Then I can throw suggestions at it. It's a really interesting process. And, you know, I mean, you guys have so much more experience with this than me. I just know what I'd heard from other authors, right? That, you know, maybe you want to take the money and run. That doesn't seem to be what goes on these days. It seems to be an opportunity for writers to sort of, you know, get into the Hollywood process a little bit. And that's what I wanted to try. And now I'm not so sure because it is, uh, you know, I, I see why they have to make the choices that they make. You know, it's the book, but it's very different. You know, we're trying to stay true to the overall uh, thing that it's a woman's story, you know, that we want the women to come off as professional and not how they're often portrayed, which is either as a handmaiden or having some great psychological flaw or something, <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, or that everything gets filtered through the men first and then come to the woman. We want to show the women as strong professionals, but you know, like you kind of alluded to before that the pop culture image of a spy is so strong. And that's what modern audiences expect to see that James Bond type of character where it's all action and gunfire and stuff like that, which is so different from what it really is in real life. You know, that at first I was finding myself getting a little frustrated when the writers kept wanting to to go to, in the James Bond perspective, but I realized it could end up being a really boring first hour and then we're never going to get picked up, you know? So we're, we're trying to draw the line there, but. It's, it's a, it's a weird process. Um, you know, like with my, my experience with warehouse was like, the, and, and I still like, they're 
I, I don't know what's going on with that. Like they were talking to a director at one point. That's the last I heard. Um, and then is it for TV or for a movie? For a movie. Um, okay, cool. And it's like they have to, you know, naturally, like I understand, like they have to make a lot of changes to bring it from the page to the screen. Because I mean, like almost a third of the book is told in like blog posts, and you can't you can't film a blog post. <laughs> um, and yeah, but it's 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 just it's weird to kind of take something that you've you've labored over and 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 you know obviously this is really personal for you and then to kind of like give it over to someone and be like okay like treat my baby okay and and there's that push pull between like you know you want them to do it justice but there's sort of like that that cutthroat rational aspect of it like you know even if they make a bad movie I'm still going to sell a lot of books so it's going to be okay <laughs> right you have to keep telling yourself for a while. Um, as we were developing the pilot for Fox and the showrunner is, is, you know, super experienced. She's a wonderful writer and I can understand her frustration, right? Cause she's not, she didn't grow up in this world. So, she, you know, all she has to go by uh, is what she's learned from other movies and that sort of thing. And what she sees in the newspaper, which, you know, is also an incomplete story. But for a while, as we were trying to answer the network's, request for changing things it felt like I was rewriting my book every day <laughs> like okay this is the way the book went but we're not going that way okay so how else could this have happened how else could this have happened in a much more action-oriented dynamic way and you know it goes back to the reality like you said of you know the books like John Le Carre and Charles McCary are more accurate because they show that it's you know it's all about thinking through a problem talking, you know, talking to another person in order to get that information. Um, I mean, today there's a little bit more of the hacking and, but even hacking is sort of a boring thing to try to film, right? <laughs> you know, this is, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting where you think it's successful in the book, maybe because it's so much more of a thinky thing as opposed to TV, you know, which is just trying to feed you the complete picture all the time and keep your attention. It's amazing how many scenes you have to have. Uh, in <laughs> yeah. An hour. Yeah. Well, yeah. Did you find yourself trying to find like film or TV examples of, I'd like it to, you know, feel more like this, or was that something that you were um, not really looking at? So my first assignment from um, the TV people was look at um, all of the more recent like TV shows, not so much movies, more TV shows uh, that had to do with espionage and tell us what you think works and doesn't work. So that was fun. Um, there's a couple that are very good and there are some that, which are really popular that it, it's probably no surprise to you. Like most people in intelligence don't really like to watch intelligence shows because they're so outrageous, <laughs> so outrageous. But, um, yeah, so we we talked a little bit about that, but again, you know, I feel really bad sometimes because I feel like I'm handcuffing that the uh, showrunner. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's interesting. Um, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, like Private Eyes. You know, I think uh, David Corbett, um, who is a great PI novelist, is a Private Eye, um, and, mm -hmm. and and there's been a few, and it's always like. <laughs> They're always like, yeah, like like people write these books where PIs are like superheroes, and the reality is that it's mostly just like following around guys who are cheating on their wife. Yeah. <laughs> and there can be a great compelling story there, right? But yeah, yeah, and, and it's tough. I, you know, because I'm I'm not a huge student of um, spy fiction for that reason, 
but a few of the more popular ones I've read and, you know, sometimes it just hurts me a little, right? Like if people really enjoy or really interested in the spy business, this is okay, but this is not the spy business. And there's so many other books that are very good, you know, that you just wish you could nudge them over to and you don't understand, at least I don't understand, like why that gap? Why are the most unrealistic things the most popular things? Why is it so hard to get people to maybe dig in a little bit? I don't know. I, I do have the tendency to be a horrible downer. So you guys are <laughs> boiling up there. It's being an intelligence analyst for 30 years and having to stare the grim reality of, of life in the face every day. So, so if someone wanted to make like a, a, a sort of deeper dive into espionage fiction that you think is, is a little bit more aligned with the reality, you know, obviously you've got people like Jean Le Carre and, and Charles McCarry who have those backgrounds, but what other authors would you, would you sort of like nudge people toward? Well, I'll tell you, one of my favorite books, it's a bit old and he never really did a follow-up, was written by Joe Weisberg, who is the showrunner for The Americans. Um, what some people know is he did go through the training program at the clandestine service. I understand he left at the end of it. It's a three-year program. And now he's forever shackled to having to send his scripts that deal with spies. To <laughs> publication. I read an article on how that worked, or uh, maybe it was an interview he gave somewhere. That was super interesting. But his second novel is a book called An Ordinary Spy. I don't even know if you can get it anymore. But it is excellent. It is like the most realistic depiction of what happens when you're a young case officer, when you're doing your first tour and how it's not what you think it's going to be. You know, they're not going to send you out to, you know, make the big score with the Russians on your first trip. They send you to some backwater country and you're kind of left on your own out to dry to try to find and develop asset spies, you know, who are going to give you information and you know, your whole career is riding on this. So there's, you know, a lot of anxiety around it. It's a really tough business. And um, he did an excellent job portraying that. Um, Charles Cumming is also very good. Olin Stenhauer is great. I'm, I'm, my eyes are drifting over to where my bookcase is. Because <laughs> <laughs> if I could read the titles, I could give you some more, but you know, those pop to mind. Um, uh Dave, I think his last name is McClowski, just wrote a book, um, Damascus Station, which is very good. It was so realistic. Me and some other intelligence officers who read it were like, damn, how did he get this through pre-pub review? And now I see the bar has really <laughs> been lowered so I can write anything. <laughs> this book, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Do you dip much into nonfiction as, as far as like reading about espionage and stuff? Not so much because I'm still, I'm starting to age out of what's current. Um, but I have a pretty good sense, I think, of the more current techniques. I, like I said, I did a lot in the tech world. So actually I could write a really good hacker novel, but, <laughs> you know, I'm not finding much of a market there. What do you think, uh, Mr. Warehouse? Do you think there'd be a, a market for a really good hacker novel? I feel like it's probably the same thing uh, where most hacker novels are written by people who don't understand how to hack. And so they're probably like completely ridiculous and silly and don't make any sense. And then you would write a novel about what it's like to actually be a hacker. And it's like sitting at your computer for nine hours with like a big jug of soda and like trying to stay awake. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I guess the only good example I can think of was um, Chuck Wendig wrote a novel years ago. 
Is that zeros? Zeros. Uh-huh. And and he he clearly put in a ton of time and research. And actually, yeah. like I think it was in the acknowledgments, he talked a little bit about like the resources that he went to, and that was super cool. That was a, a good really book. fun book. It was a really good book. Well, I'll have to read it. You know, so not right now, but recently I had spent a lot of time in um, social media analytics. I was one of the first analysts in the whole intelligence community to look at how we would do analytics to really understand. You know, it's the technical side, not looking at the content, not looking at what's in the Twitter post or something like that, but using all the metadata and the network information in order to really make sense of it. Now it's a huge field and I actually advise companies on this, but um, so I followed a lot of disinformation from the beginning, what was happening, how it was being used as a political weapon. And I really want to write a book on that or develop a TV show on that and it's just disappointing the reaction you get. It's like, yeah, nobody cares about that. Like, nobody's going to read a book about that. Or it'd be too depressing to watch a TV. You know, like, because a lot of the Netflix shows that have been about disinformation really haven't caught on. And right. so I can I can mm-hmm. understand the industry's reluctance to go there. But I don't know. Do you guys get caught up in this where you feel like, damn it, there should be a novel on this. And it's going to spark the public imagination and open eyes. You know it's not. So why? <laughs> I, I think it's a great idea because I remember because um, I'm I've been really interested in uh, a, a lot of like what Russia's been doing with like social media disruption and disinformation. And I remember reading that like there was a lot of controversy around the new Star Wars movies, uh, specifically like the Ryan Johnson one, The Last Jedi, because like all these people were like, "You're ruining Star Wars. You're making this like you're destroying our childhoods. You're doing all these terrible things." And and the, the 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 backlash against it got so great, and and it was really turning into this like cultural cultural war almost. And then someone discovered that a lot of the posts, a lot of that was driven by the Russians. So right. it's like they're they're not just going after like things that are like politically related; they're going after things that are pop culture related just to create those divisions and just to sort of. And the 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 depths that they're going to get us at each other's throats to even go like you know to a a fucking space movie for kids like it's <laughs> yeah. crazy. So I hadn't heard that as you were describing it. I'm like, oh, those Russians—they're just doing this for fun, you know, because they're bored. So I worked with teams that did a lot of research during the 2016 presidential campaign. Oh my fucking God. And <laughs> some of them, you know, were advising the Senate select committee. So they knew, the, you know, Senate knew what was going on. It's, it's a lot worse than I think most people are aware of, right? Like, you know, how, yes, they're, the Russians are using, so I'll, propaganda 101, one of the organizations I work for, one of the offices, it was used to be known as the open source center. They're the people who do their propaganda analysts, right? They've been around for 60, 70 years now studying propaganda. And what, how you do that is uh, you study another country's um, culture and you determine what their key narratives are. These are the stories we tell us about ourselves, right? That drive what we think it means to be an American and all that kind of stuff. And then you work out your propaganda campaign (laughs) to go after those key narratives. And the Russians are super good at it, right? So they know what Americans think about themselves and they figure out and they know what terrible divides are on this country and they just manipulate the two. So I'm sure you heard things like during the campaign, I'll never forget when this one researcher came to me, I was still at NSA at the time. 
He said, you know, we're seeing something really weird because they already were able to follow a lot of the Russian troll efforts and that sort of thing. We weren't able at that time to tie them back to specific entities in the government and the military at that time, but we knew something was going on. And he came to me and he was far and away, had been doing this better than any other researcher I'd seen. And he said, I'm seeing the strangest thing. Um, I think we knew that they were pushing narratives on the right, but he said, oh, we're seeing um, the narratives on the left really kind of going out of control. And he thought at the time that that meant that the left was duplicating the efforts of the far right. And I hadn't seen all the data at that point. And I said, no, I bet you it's the Russians masquerading as far left entities in order to irritate the fuck out of the party. <laughs> and that is exactly what happened. So like the Black Lives Matter movement, right? The the entities that the Russians set up, and they even went so far as to send real, to hire real Americans to pre- represent these pretend organizations to pay <laughs> you know, people on the ground to have demonstrations and shit like that. But they did it all, right, To just to drive up the anger and the, um, you know, the violent reaction of the right, you know. And all, I can't believe that, like, all Americans aren't aware of these stories. The Russians are manipulating every, so, like, you know, I live in a red state right now. I live way out in the boonies. I am surrounded by um, Trump flags, Trump 2024 <laughs> flags. Sorry. And, Fuck, I know. Fuck <laughs> Except for exactly where I, I live in like a little blue pocket on a mountaintop. <laughs> beautiful, um, by the way. I've seen your pictures online and beautiful things you're doing with your house. It, it is gorgeous out here. I probably need to learn how to shoot a gun soon. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, talking to these people, my head just wants to explode because I just hear them parroting these things that we know are being pushed out by the propaganda machine, right? You know. It's so hearing both of you talk about this and knowing more than I do. Um, I go back to that Star Wars example, though, and um, something like that could easily t- like tap into like a deeper cultural fear because, like, you take even that first new Star Wars movie where there was a black stormtrooper and you agitate people properly on that, and all of a sudden, what was a, a space movie is now you know, race, you know, dividing people on race. So it, it sounds like, oh, it's just a space movie, but it's the thing that they're using to open that door to like agitate people on deeper issues that they care deeply about. They're so clever about this and they've had decades to perfect their, I mean, that is the thing. I'm not a Russian specialist, but I've worked with a lot of them and it's interesting, you know, people become like their targets. I know people on the outside sort of freak when I say targets, but you know, you work a particular issue, that's your target. So you get all these social, you know, people who, you know, studied Russian culture, grew up in Russian families, but then, you know, when they come into the IC, then you have to observe it, you know, it's your subject and you have to, you know, um, watch it and measure it every day and, you know, take its temperature and all this fun stuff. But it's true. Like the, the, they say it and you see it reflected in their behaviors. It's just a culture of manipulation and propaganda and control and all this stuff, which is so not what Americans are used to that. Yeah. I wonder how long is it going to take for us to develop that, that thick outer skin? I tell people all the time, for God's sake, believe nothing that you read on social media. 70% right. of it is bots, right? If you're lucky yep. on some subjects, it's even higher. 
And yet people can't stop themselves from believing the Facebook, you know, headline when they see it. And that's all it takes. You don't have to click through and say, oh, yeah, that's a stupid site. That doesn't make any sense. The seed's already been planted in your mind. Yeah. I'm a huge advocate <laughs> for um, regulating the social platforms, as you can probably tell. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It's, it's, it's a dangerous mix because, yeah, I mean, I... I don't remember what I read one of the books. It was a nonfiction book. It was about um, Russian interference. I think it might've been called the Russian doctrine or something, but, um, and, and it was about some of the propaganda efforts. And it's like, it also seems like this thing that like the Russians are just eating our lunch on this. Like we don't have any mechanisms for this and they are just like, this is, this is everything they do is like really working that propaganda machine. And we just kind of sit there and we go, Oh, well, that's a thing that's happening. Okay, cool. What else is on TV? You know. I know. It's completely frustrating. Why isn't the American people getting energized? Why aren't our policymakers trying to protect us, right? They know this is going on, but they can't put their own differences aside because it would, you know, reveal weaknesses in one party, um, you know, to try to protect this country. And as someone who worked 35 years to protect this country, it's so frustrating. So that's, demoralizing. That's, that's a perspective I hadn't thought about. Like, um, you like the people who are, you know, putting their lives into making sure that the people who are safe in our country have to watch all this bullshit go down and it's got to be terribly frustrating. Yeah. It's horrible. I just want to punch people, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm a 60 year old woman. Some of my friends, some of my researcher friends who've done a lot of this work have death threats against them, right? In Russia, like they cannot go to Russia they kind of have to watch their backs when they go to Europe, stuff like that. People, you know, do risk to try to bring these things to life. I mean, and these people don't even work for the government, right? They're researchers. Yeah. Who, because unfortunately, this is one of the biggest things. I just had this argument with someone at CIA yesterday, I think it was. We're still not really investing enough uh, in the programs to to make us good analysts of this. Still, a lot of the work is being done in the research community they just can't, it's, it's a different type of research. It's extremely uh, quantitative. And for 10 years, I've been trying to get, you know, the IC to force their analysts to start doing more quantitative analysis, which is what the rest of the world is doing. Um, you know, we're just getting left behind further and further every day. It's really scary. You know, I, I would I would absolutely read a book about this and I would love to see right. a book about this, but I also kind of feel like it's one of those things where like, you have to take the concept and almost kind of like blow it out and do something weird like Animal Farm or, or Handmaid's Tale. Because I, I think it's one of those things where it's it's like global warming, where like people like they see global warming stories and they're like, nope, nope, don't want to think about this. Don't want to think about the fact that we're burning. Like no one wants to go like, oh, yeah, no, I don't want to think that that, you know, my Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are all, you know, probably compromised by Russian assets. Yeah. I mean, one thing I was thinking is maybe I can convince them for like the, if we get there, the third season of Red Widow or the, actually the third book, I am in the process of finishing up the second book and which is, it's a Red Widow book, but it's very different from this book. Um, but maybe for the third book, we can go to disinformation because I had this whole thing worked out for a TV pitch, which everyone says, oh, that's really interesting, but no one will watch it. So yeah, we're not, <laughs> um, because I do think there's a good story there. And there's a human story there, you know. Um, the people who get involved on the flip side, you know, the folks in Eastern Europe who do this, who come up with all these weird-ass clickbait stories, right? Because they have no other alternative. There's, like, no other way to make money over there. Right. 
Yeah. Well, that that is spectacular news that you're almost done with the second book because that was actually uh, one of my next questions. Is so so this is now going to be a series. Well, we hope. We hope. We'll see. Yeah, it depends on how successful um, it it gets. I mean, the first book did well. It came out during the pandemic. This is my second pandemic book. It did better <laughs> than the first pandemic book. You know, but it it hasn't been a super easy road to hoe. We'll we'll see if its fortunes pick up with the um, paperback, which comes out in March. And I think once, if, if we get greenlit, you know, that'll probably help yeah. build up momentum for it too. So, so that's, so that's Red Widow. And now there's the fervor, mm-hmm. which is next. So, um, and, and I'm going to let Rob run with this one. Cause I know that you just finished it last night and you really loved it. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. And I'm going to do my best to not um, spoil anything for people, but there is a wonderful um, transition that we can do right now because we're talking about how tough it is to, to make people want to consume how things really are. And, um, Rob, you said, you just said it perfectly about how you have to put some crazy element into it to get people, uh, interested. And I know you were being sarcastic, but one of the things that I fucking love about the way that Alma wrote, um, hunger, the deep and, uh, you know, the fervor is how there's some element and I'll focus on the fervor. Um, uh, there's some element that is not real that is the thing that makes it easier to take in the story. I, I will, I'll say that. Um, and so uh, um, I think that's a, it's a perfect way to get people to be more disposed to consume the thing that you're, um, you're writing because it's that, you know, um, the suspension of disbelief is, is like a contract with the reader in this situation where if you're writing something more realistic, you don't have that like ability. So I'm wondering, there's probably a conversation there, but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself and we should talk about what the fervor is a little bit first, or do you want to just go right into that thought? Yeah, we can go into that thought because, you know, it's kind of interesting. The, those historical horror novels have evolved a little. The first one was The Hunger, and it was very much closer to reality. You know, almost all the characters were actual people who had, who had lived, who were part of the Donner Party and had gone through that terrible terrible ordeal. The timeline stayed very close to the actual timeline, the locations. There was really no flight of fancy. And so when the the horror element kind of slipped in and it was a very open thing, right? It wasn't like, um, you know, its own world that drop, got dropped in whole cloth. It, it was more magical realism, you know, where you weren't sure if what was going on around you was true or not. Right. Um, I wrote that. And then, you know, how after your book, you have to start working on the promotion. So the question that kept getting thrown at me is, you know, why should we care about the Donner Party today? Why are we still interested in the story of the Donner Party? So I looked at the historical perspective at the time. Oh, and the other thing was people kept saying, because this was right around the 26, I was writing it in 2016 (laughs) during the election. And people kept saying, you know, there's these funny little overtones of the political political issue, you know, that we're feeling right now coming through. Was that intentional? And so I'm not a historian, but I'm a researcher and I kind of like seized up and I thought, oh, no, did I taint the story by letting what's going on today bleed through? So I look back at like what were the biggest issues of the time? What were, would have been the issues that were sort of bubbling underneath the actual Donner Party exodus? And it was, you know, Manifest Destiny that 
um, white Americans, white Christian Americans thought that God had blessed them and they were supposed to own the land from ocean to ocean, right? It was theirs for the taking because they were a chosen select people who were graced by God. And um, religious freedom was another part of the issue. So I felt like, okay, that was valid, you know, that, that the things that sort of manifested itself in the, in the Donner Party, in, in the hunger, you know, were valid because they were part of the time. Fast forward to the fervor. I've just flipped that completely around. I think it's much <laughs> more interesting <laughs> to write about what's happening now politically and using something from history as an example. Because I, I certainly learned that on the deep, which is a sort of a retelling of the sinking of the Titanic. And I looked at what it, were the big social issues at the time up front. And it was class disparity. That was the hugest gap between, you know, think of the Gilded Age, robber barons. You know, we got that name for a reason. You had these dynastic families that were hoarding all the wealth and the poverty line was growing. And the, you know, um, people living in poverty was absolutely astounding. And it was because of, you know, so you had that and you had women's rights were the two big issues. So, you know, I really leaned into that in the deep because that would resonate with us nowadays. That's exactly what we were going through and continue to go through right now. So by the time the fervor came around, which is looking at um, the Japanese internment, uh, and it's, it uses an actual historical event as the catalyst, which was the only deaths on U.S. mainland, U.S. Soul, soil during World War II was the fire balloon explosion up in Bly, Oregon. So I, it is anchored with actual historical events. But at the time, I, you know, we're going that I was writing it. We're going through COVID. We're going through this prolonged period of anti-Asian hate, which was completely a political propaganda a story that was affected by one of the political parties in the United States. And you look at these things, and I knew a lot about the internment because my husband's family were all interned. So we knew a lot about it. I mean, not only did we have their stories, but, you know, we had seen a lot of documentaries, read a lot of books, just really learned a lot about what were the real, um, all of the threads behind it, right? Including the motivations, why, why did America intern its own citizens with absolutely no reason to substantially fear that they were being traitors or that they would turn spy or anything like that. You know, what were the other motivations? Anyway, it was just a perfect time now <laughs> to use that to maybe make people look at what we're going through right now. Yeah. And, um, uh, that was a super long winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was wonderful. Um, I think it's one of the, the most compelling things about the book, but it's also like um, there's another part of it, which is it's absolutely a part of history that is underrepresented or undertaught. Um, and so this gives people an opportunity to, to like maybe have a starting point to want to learn more about it, I would say as well. You know, you can only hope, right? I certainly feel like back in the nineties, it was talked about more, but maybe it was because reparations, they had decided they were going to make reparations at that time. Mm so that it just bubbled up into the public consciousness. At least I don't run into a lot of people yet, I haven't gone on book tour yet, who say they've never heard of it, <laughs> which happened when I did the Donner Party thing. That was really shocking. Right. Um, yeah, because they taught it in school when I was a kid. Nowadays, they don't really teach it. If it weren't for the Oregon Trail video game, no one <laughs> probably <laughs> would have heard of it. But um, it, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see what kind of discussion it generates. 
I mean, I don't know if you guys remember after 9-11, right? There was that brief moment when there was talk about um, somehow interning or jailing Arab Americans. Yep. And I think it was the remembrance of what had happened with the internment camps that hopefully helped turn that conversation around. So it wasn't for nothing. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be this sort of interesting um, entry point that fiction is creating now for historical events. And, and, and I, I, I would hope that most people know about Japanese internment, um, you know, but it's also, you know, I, the, the, the most recent example I can think of is the show Watchmen, which, you know, uh, on HBO, which is really seemed to introduce people to a deeper understanding of like the Tulsa massacre, you know, and, and the destruction of Black Wall Street and how like, you know, I, I, and I know for me personally, and this is probably a privileged thing, but it's just not something that I really, I like, I knew what it was, but it's not something I knew a ton about. And then I saw the show and I was like, oh, like, here's a gap in my knowledge that I would really like to fill. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see now that that fiction is kind of becoming that entry point. And I think, and, and I think it's because like fiction, fiction really is an empathy, empathy machine. You know, like if you tell someone, Hey, you have to go learn about this historical thing, people kind of blank over, but when they can see like, Oh wow. Oh God, this was a horrible thing, you know, and, and they can kind of be in the character's shoes a little bit, then they get like a better feeling of like, Oh wow. Now I kind of understand the weight of this a little bit more. You know, it's interesting. I hope. I mean, that was a great show. I have to say I didn't read the book, but um, I do think, you know, that show contributed a lot to getting the discussion going a little bit in America. I would really hope. I mean, it would be wonderful if the fervor could sort of be a catalyst for that kind of discussion around how Asians are treated in this country. Um It'll it'll be interesting. God, there was something else I was going to say and went right out of my head. This is <laughs> this is my old brain. <laughs> that happens more and more. That's not a good thing. Okay. <laughs> um, and well, I, I have two kind of completely different thoughts. So I'm gonna I, I'll say both of them. We'll go with the one that is more interesting. Um, kind of a final thought on the talking about the history of things was that um, we probably get like the base level understanding of the Japanese internment camps. Um, to at least a degree, hopefully. But one of the things that was um, highlighted was how there was kind of a more, you know, uh, opportunistic kind of feeling from some people about, hey, if all of these Japanese business people are suddenly not in my town, I have better access to customers or, or, or you know, things like that. So um, I, the fact that this is a story that you're writing, a narrative that you're building gives you the opportunity to subtly, but definitely make the point that, you know, there were other uh, uh, motivations, but then also horrible impacts on the people. You know, they didn't just get taken away. They lost their future, basically. So, yeah, yeah. hopefully all of those points, not uh, to, to some degree, right, get represented in the story. It was an interesting process writing the book. And this is what I had meant to mention before. Um, you guys uh, may not be aware, but I actually have partners uh, on these historical horror novels. I've been working with Glasstown Entertainment and how that, and we're partners. I'm, it's not work for hire or anything. We brainstorm on what historical event we want to work on. Uh, we kind of come up together with the, I, the overall plot and then I do the writing. This one was interesting in that it did change quite a bit from the plotting to a certain point where I realized, no, it's got to be a completely different kind of book. I can't write a book that isn't going to tell the Japanese side and isn't going to be angry. I, 
never really written a book where one of the characters was so angry. But as you know, the main Japanese character in the book actually gets kind of violent, which is very uncharacteristic for oh, Japanese yeah. women. <laughs> oh, it felt so good. And um, <laughs> I realized I had been carrying around a lot of anger from the stories I heard from my mother, from my, you know, my husband's family, the things that had happened to them. It's, it's really fascinating. I mean, his father, for instance, who was a teenager go- going into the camps, and his stories were always so upbeat and cheerful. And I had to say to him, how, how can you be like that? Why can't you be angry? But he couldn't let himself be angry, you know, because they were very much influenced in the camps to not be bad, you know, to not criticize the government, to show what good, loyal citizens they were. So they bent over backwards and just took this abuse, which maybe in the long run didn't really help their case. But I mean, there's all these little nuances to what it was like to be in the camps, you know, what you gave up, you know, uh, writing while I was showing drafts to people. They didn't realize that most of the Japanese Americans who were interned, the Japanese Americans, not the first generation Japanese, they were just Americans. They had... American names. They went to Baptist churches. You know, right. they wore American clothes. They didn't walk around in kimonos. These and you're like, so the degree to which this stuff isn't known is amazing to me on one hand. But I know the only reason I know it is because my husband and I were so immersed in it for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other thought that I had, and um, I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's a, a future for this type of thing, but. Um, when you're looking at a lot of the television fiction that's happening now, you'll see like accompanying podcasts that kind of dig deeper into the narratives and the themes that are going on and stuff. And I, I don't know if it's something that would be able to have traction with a book release, but like um, that's something that I've actually found a lot of value in is like if I've watched something and then there's a podcast that analyzes it, I'll use um, that fiction um, series on HBO for about Chernobyl as an example getting to see how they did the, you know, what they, what they decided to do, how they decided to change things fictitiously to serve the narrative, but still try to be true to what was happening in reality. Um, that series of episodes of that podcast really enlightened, I think the actual situation more for me. I just don't know if that's something that could be, uh, that could get traction from, from a book release the way it would off of a television show. Probably for a more famous person than me. (laughs) (laughs) For The Hunger and the Deep, I actually did do some podcast episodes myself. And I, because I, (laughs) because I hate to see things go to waste, you know, I, I, built out what my uh, talk was going to be for the book tours. And a lot of it ends up being history because that's what people seem to be the most interested in. You know, what's the real history? Where did you diverge from it? You know, and when you throw out a bunch, a lot of interesting historical little known facts, um, And it always got a really good response when I was on tour. And then I was kind of disappointed because, you know, you only get to, you're only seen by so many people while you're on tour. And I thought if I could make this material available to people, they, you know, might find it more interesting. So I did, I think like four podcasts for the hunger and maybe three for the deep. Um, But, you know, they just never caught on. But thanks for reminding me because I probably should plan to do a couple for the fervor too. Well, actually, uh, and, and there's something that might be interesting to play with there. Um, so uh, my new book, Paradox Hotel, is coming out in February. And one of the things that my publisher has me doing now is 
annotating the warehouse on the Kindle edition through Goodreads. And like you link up your Kindle and your Goodreads account and the author can leave annotations on the book. Um, and the idea is, is that they, we, we put the annotations live in like a month before the on sale date. And what it does is it then pings everyone who bought it and reminds them like, Hey, there's a new book coming out, which is like a very clever marketing technique, but, um, it's also real fun because (laughs) I, and, and I, my, uh, the, the, the woman who's handling my marketing, um, Kathleen, she's like, okay, do like, you know, 12 to 15. And I was like 12 to 15 annotations. I'm like, okay. And I'm going through the book and I'm like, I would like to annotate everything. And, um, <laughs> and so I was like, how, cause she was like, you know, you don't want to do too many. You don't want to overwhelm people. And I was like, okay, how many can you reasonably give me on this? She's like, don't go past 24. I'm like, okay, fine. But, um, I really, really love this function because it's basically like, so yeah, like it's really, really easy way to go in and sort like, I've been able to like, you know, pick out some references like, oh, hey, this is a reference. Like I wrote about ice cream because I'm obsessed with ice cream. And this is a reference to an ice cream shop near me that I love. And then it's like, oh, hey, like this part here was inspired by this article, which I kind of guessed at. And then it ended up coming true like six months after the book came out or something. (laughs) So it's a super fun process. When is that going to be available? The uh, the annotations pr- probably in like January I think. Um, that's to look for because I'm like really excited. It's it's super fun and I also there's something there's something in the warehouse that I I, I thought someone that, that that is complete and utter bullshit that I thought someone was going to call me on at some point. It's something that Gibson says and like no one ever has. And so <laughs> I've been and so I'm just kind of giving up on waiting for it and I'm just going to say what it is in the in the, in the annotations. But um. But it's a super fun process, and and I can I, I can now see like for especially for someone who's writing historicals, how valuable that can be as sort of like a, a see also a tool. Idea. Yeah, unless my accomplices what they think of it. Yeah, yeah, because again, like it also it pings people who are either I think subscribed to you on Goodreads or already bought it or something. So it's like it raises your profile a little bit, which ain't a bad thing, especially when you got a book coming out soon. You're good at uh, all this stuff. <laughs> no, my my publishing team is good at this stuff. I just do what they tell me. I'm good at following directions. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm just over here waiting for you guys to collaborate on a misinformation novel now. I, I would not say no to that. That 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 would be a lot of fun. Because honestly, like the, the 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 like the more we were talking about it, I'm like, oh, I would do this, and I'm like, no, this is yours. You actually know this subject. I would just be making it up and adding explosions. That's probably what it needs. <laughs> I would just be too boring. But um, well, we'll have to think of this. Maybe I should send you the pitch for the TV series and get your reaction to it, and and you can tell me. No, this is definitely too boring. <laughs> I would, I honestly, I would love to see that. So please do send okay. it over. All right. Well, there's a lot coming up for you, Alma, on the horizon. The paperback of Red Widow is in early March 2022. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I we've think also March first. I, I I wrote it down and I couldn't tell if it was a one or a seven. So I just. <laughs> It's like, that's good enough. That's close enough. Uh, but we also talked about how the series is in development, which is fantastic. Um, and then also, fingers crossed, we'll be seeing uh, the book's title is Red London, right? That would be the next in the in the book series. Then we've got The Fervor, which is uh, releasing August, uh, excuse me, April 26th of, of next year as well. So there's just so much amazing, awesome Alma Katsu content to look forward to. 
That's so kind of you. Yeah. And there's a couple anthologies too. I don't know if I should, I'm, I'm going to be in a couple anthologies. One is my favorite short. I mean, I don't write a lot of short stories, so I don't show up in a lot of anthologies, but um, I've had to write a few. Luckily the horror community has been so generous. It, it's welcomed me, me into the fold. So we've gotten some invitations and one is um, other terrors, I think is the, no, that's a different one. That's the Horror Writers Association. That's coming out in July, I think. And I have a story in there and that's a great collection. It's Dark Stars is the name mm, of the anthology. Yep. And it's the latest, I guess it kind of comes out periodically. Really lucky to be in it. It's got a great collection, but my favorite church story I've written in there, it's called The Familiar's Assistant. And it is so fucked up. <laughs> I read it at a con uh, a little while ago. I don't like going live, but but I went out to this and I did a reading and I look out and everybody's mouth is saying <laughs> well, So yeah, I'm looking forward to that story. That's awesome. And you reminded me of the other thing that I wanted to talk about, which was that I love your presence in horror. Um, something lately that I've, I've just become much more focused on is... Um, that horror is going through kind of a renaissance at the moment and that a lot of the most exciting voices are women uh, that I'm reading. At least I know that there's just a ton of amazing authors out there, but the ones that I seem to be gravitating toward are all of these, these wonderful, you know, um, women authors. And um, I, I, I just, in the last, like, maybe it's just cause I'm paying more attention lately, but you are so active on social media interacting with the horror community. And I love to see, um, that you're becoming such a welcomed voice because I've loved reading your book so much. That's so kind of you. You know, I think it's because they're nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they you know, tag me and retweet me and all that kind of stuff. They're a very generous community, which seems kind of most, you know, wouldn't, most people wouldn't assume that. They really are the, the sweetest people. All these horror writers you meet, they're really super generous and kind and giving you know, not like thriller writers at all. They're just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, thriller writers are terrible. We are the worst. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's uh, it seems like that's a community that really does embrace um, their contemporaries and, and help push each other, rise each other up uh, a lot. Very much so. It's very genuine. It's yeah. Such nice, nice folks. Yeah. Um, there's actually, I, I'm just memory just dislodged as, as you were talking. Um, there's this horror themed store in Chicago. I live in the Chicago area. And, um, so all the books that they carry are horror books. And so they've got, you know, the one, uh, you know, the ones that you've published, the hunger, the deep, um, and red widow. So red widow is showing up because it's one of your books, red widow is showing up and I've seen it in horror sections as well. So they're definitely trying to keep that, um, that recognition out there and keep you, keep you, keep you selling. I think that's very kind of them. It is a weird conundrum though. And I don't know, <laughs> you know, we talked about this a lot, me and Putnam, how, how are we going to manage this? Cause the sensible thing would have been to use a pseudonym, but that's my real name. And I was a real spy. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, I couldn't do that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to figure out how to manage it. And it's weird too, like the way books, like, cause the bookstore stuff, the way they, like I've, I've seen warehouse shelved in general literature, in sci-fi and in mystery, all within the Barnes and Noble system. Like I was walking yeah. by the Park Slope Barnes and Noble recently and I popped in to use the bathroom and then I was looking around and I was like, oh, I'm not in thriller. I'm not in sci-fi. I guess I'm not here. And then I saw myself on the literary section. I'm like, <laughs> whatever. 
cool. I thought you were going to say you were in all three sections. <laughs> <laughs> which, which would be cool too, but it's, it's, it's weird. It's like, you know, I don't know. Like I, and I like that you, you, you stuck with your own name on that. Cause I mean, I, I don't know about you for me personally, I have too much of an ego to write under a pet name. <laughs> um, but also it's like, you know, yeah, like it's you. And I, and I feel like, uh, you know, I, and I understand their segmentation of audience, but like, you know, I feel like someone who really likes your writing is going to sort of not have that much of an issue segueing from something that's more horror into something that's more espionage, you know? Um, Someday, if I have the guts, I'll I'll kind of poll people or pulse <laughs> them and find out. But I think, unfortunately, I think the ones that have made the leap are very small. Probably people who personally know me. Uh, or, or you know, what you should do is you should you should cross those two audiences and do like vampire spies. <laughs> you know, I think a lot about that. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if you guys know Chris Farnsworth. But yeah. a long time ago, like when my first book came out, I think he had, he did a book that was it was the president's vampire, and uh, <laughs> I thought, no, I can't, I'll never be able to top that. So <laughs> I don't know, or or zombie spies. I mean, werewolf spies. Werewolf spies. Yeah. I'm actually writing. I can't get into it too much. But I'm writing my first werewolf story. It's funny how I don't know how you guys think, but maybe there's a topic that you think I'll never write about that. I never thought I'd write a werewolf story. It just didn't appeal to me. This particular niche, it's really fun to do something you never thought you'd do. Honestly, the one thing that I've kind of shied away from is historical stuff because I feel like, and that's just me being like a, a lazy student where it's like, I'm afraid of getting stuff wrong and like, and I, I fall down research holes real hard. And that's for my books where I get to make everything up because it's all weird near future stuff so it's like you know if i actually have to like put and i understand there's a difference between like accuracy and believability and and you can always kind of like play around with that but there there's a part of me that feels like i would get so locked into learning everything i could about the time period that i would just completely like cease to function like my brain would shut off and it would never get done it's easy to do um, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined because I was a researcher for a long time, but I was very nervous about doing The Deep, which is the Titanic book, for exactly that reason. There's more, you know, reference material you could go through. It would take more than a lifetime. There's so much stuff, right? You can't learn everything. Um, you know, so luckily you have to have a good sense of learning what's important and leaving the rest on the table. But it's also that area where they have legions of diehard fans. And I just pictured people with like, pitchforks and torches coming after me, you know, for <laughs> bastardizing the, the Titanic uh, story, you know, the mythos. So, but it never happened, I guess, because it came out right when the pandemic, right when the lockdown was starting and, and nobody ever heard of the book and it just, just sank out of visibility. I'm sorry. That is, I, I feel bad for everyone who had to release books during the pandemic. Like, I, I felt lucky that like mine mine's coming out in February and like I was hoping we'd be mostly out of this by then, but at this point, who knows? We might not be. So Yeah. It must be hard. I mean, are they talking about plans? Because we're what, like three months out. So I, I was Sorry. literally emailing I was emailing with my marketing people this morning. We're mostly focusing on virtual events. Um like I'm doing uh I'm definitely doing the Staten Island Barnes and Noble, which is where I live, and, and I always get a great turnout there and, and we can do it, you know, COVID safe, mask people, yada yada. But like it's it's definitely weird. Um 
you know, but but at the same time, I think book publishers are now going to be moving toward this model because I think they were before the pandemic anyway. It was like, you know, why are we going to send you on like uh, spend thousands and thousands of dollars on a multi-city tour where unless you're Stephen King, you know, or, or like, you know, Lee Childs, you're, you're not going to pack a house. So you're not going to sell enough copies to blank out the trip. And now I think the pandemic kind of proved that you can get decent audiences with like no sunk cost through like the virtual events. So I don't know. I feel like we're going to be moving toward those in a big way. Yeah. I mean, my publishers certainly said that, although they haven't been, you know, talked a lot about specifics and for an author like you, it's probably not an issue, but for folks like me um, and, you know, I've heard that while the audiences are okay, that the virtual events don't seem to generate the sales as much as, you know, a live in person thing did. Uh, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> We're going to figure it out. <laughs> um, well, we have to, we can't go out on, on how to, we can't go out on a marketing conversation. We have to, we have to find something else, right? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, I, I would say that, you know, the, the, this should be coming out shortly. And so um, people will hopefully be in the midst of their holiday shopping. And I would say Red Widow is definitely an awesome gift for just about anyone who's into, you know, fun, exciting fiction. So people should definitely add that to their list. Um, is there anything you're reading right now, Alma, that you would you would like to plug or, or talk about? Let me think. Sorry. Yeah, I know. See, and, and we talked about this before, and I was like, that's the worst question to ask an author is to ask them for specifics because their their mind goes blank. And and now I've sort of conditioned myself to freak out, you know, like to <laughs> when that question comes. Like you'd think I'd be able to think. I feel like all I do is read. You're probably in the same thing though. I'm reading things for blurbing. So like yep. they're not coming out for six months. Yeah. And you're kind of, Should I tell people about this book or not? <laughs> um Let's see if they like horror. Chris Golden's next book, oh, The Road of Bones, is coming out in January. Ooh, okay. And I have to say that's probably his best book yet. It's a real horror thriller. And um, it's about a, a documentarian who's kind of like on his last legs, right? Who goes to the Road of Bones in Siberia and runs into uh, something that you don't want to run into that chases him through the Siberian landscape. And it's really, he writes a lot of books set in the cold, I got to say. I read Ararat too, you know, and that was set on that mountain. But um, that's an excellent book. Uh, I read a great anthology recently, When Things Go Dark. It came out, I think, right around Halloween. Mm -hmm. It's an anthology of stories that are supposed to be written in the style of a reminiscence of Shirley Jackson. And it's got some amazing authors in there. Joyce Carol Oates is in there. Kelly Link, who I just uh, admire so much. A lot of great, great authors are in that one. I've really been big on anthologies lately. There's been so many good, <laughs> good stories coming out. I read about half of that when things goes when things go dark and yeah there's some like there's some of my favorite authors in there but yeah great great stories some of them yeah. really short some of them pretty chunky yeah yeah, yeah. for sure very satisfying um, I heard that there's this uh, interesting book coming out soon called Paradox Hotel and I would love to know more about that as well and yes. that'll be fine <laughs> um, no uh, that that's I I've always wanted to write a time travel novel and so I. I was like, and, and it was the hardest thing I've ever written because it's like, oh, like you think like, oh, time travel, I could figure this out. And then when you're in the middle of it, you're like, oh no, what have I done? Um, but the general idea is that like we invent time travel 
and it's sort of it's it's kind of like what's happening to space travel now where like space travel started as a scientific endeavor and then started to become a tourism industry and so it's like it's kind of the same thing it's like we develop time travel the government owns it but then in order to generate revenue they open it up to the mega wealthy so it's like oh i want to go see the first showing of hamlet or i want to go to visit the library of alexandria and um so there's this like time port and when you're going to go fly through the time port, you stay at the Paradox Hotel and, and the house detective one day who's like, she's kind of losing her mind because of like time stream radiation. She goes into a room and she sees a corpse and no one else can see it and she doesn't know why. So it's basically like her trying to solve a murder that she's not sure happens yet or is actually going to happen. And it's, uh, it's funny because I had this conversation with my agent recently where um i pitched him the book and i was like yeah it's gonna have robots and dinosaurs and like a lot of eastern philosophy and buddhism and stuff (laughs) but it's also going to be about like grief and like you know um you know like like facing yourself and 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 all this deeply personal stuff he's like this sounds crazy don't do it and i and and i really i tried to write something else and it didn't work and i started stamping my feet and i'm like no um this is the book i'm gonna write and then and then i wrote it and and we just got like a, a star and a really nice review on Publishers Weekly and I sent it to my agent and he's like, You come to me with a book about fucking dinosaurs, man. I'm like, I told you it was gonna be fine. You just have to listen <laughs> to me. And um it sounds like genius. I'm wondering like how did you get the idea for this? It was uh have you ever heard of Sleep No More? I've heard of it. Yeah, yes. it's it's this interactive theater experience in in New York where it's like you you're you're going into a hotel and it's like this giant converted warehouse in Chelsea and um I think it's Macbeth and like it's like a a sort of period like 1920s ish retelling of Macbeth where like you're in this huge space and all the actors are acting out the parts but it's an interactive thing where all the audience members are free roaming you're wearing masks um yeah I know someone who went to that. Yeah, and like you go from room to room, and it's like you'll be in a, a psych ward, and then all of a sudden you're in a cemetery, and then all of a sudden you're in like this weird hallway, and and it's it's really real. I've done it like four or five times. I love it, and I was walking through it once, and because I, I never tend to follow the show, I always tend to like you can go through drawers and you can read books and you can like search for hidden things, and and I was like, wouldn't it be cool, like because this whole thing is supposed to be a, a hotel that sort of turns into all these different things. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if there was a hotel where it's like you walked into a room and it was like five minutes ahead or 10 minutes back. And so like that night I went home and I opened up a, a Google doc and I just wrote time travel hotel and like closed it and like went about my business. And, um, and it was one of those things that it just kind of kept on coming back to me and it just started building in my head until finally I was like, yeah, yeah, no, I could do this. This is a book. Did you have to figure out a way for how to handle the time jumps and keep track? I mean, that that I would think would be like the biggest bitch. My first book, The Taker, is not a time travel book, but they it does go back and forth between 250 years. And as a, you know, brand new writer, why didn't I just shoot myself in the head? I mean, it was yep. so hard, <laughs> yep. right? So I used um, the time traveler's wife had come out around that time. And I, when I first started working on it and I read that over and over again, trying to figure out how she did it. So that was sort of my model, at least a little bit for how to write about it and how to, you know, all the mundane things. Did you have any particular model that you used or did you come up with one for yourself? 
Kind of. So, so it's interesting, I guess, in the sense that it's a time travel book that doesn't actually have any time travel in it. Um, but, but, but the general idea is that the, the, this woman, January, who's the house detective, um, she, she had been with the time enforcement administration. She was a time cop, but some people like they're, they're, uh, they, they, they can get kind of fucked up by the time radiation. And what it does is it causes this condition called being unstuck where your perception starts to like shift a little bit in time. And, you know, at first it makes her a really good detective because she can see something happen. Like she'll see something happen like 10 minutes before it happens. Um, but as the condition progresses, uh, she'll like kind of like drop into moments where, you know, that are like previous parts of her life and feel like she's reliving them. And the third stage is like your brain basically just like short circuits and fries and um, you end up in a vegetative state. So, you know, it, it was... The device was kind of fun because I got to sort of play with this idea of like, you know, okay, she's going to see something. Is it really going to happen? Or what it, What are the actual circumstances under which it's going to happen? Um, it was when I was dropping her into past memories and, and I wanted it to be kind of jarring where all of a sudden like the narrative just is suddenly in this past narrative with her, um, which my editor did not love. Um, so we had to come up with a bit of a mechanism to sort of like signify that. And we came up with something subtle that I think the readers that readers will catch on to. But, um, so yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was just, it took a ton of outlining, like a ton of outlining of sort of figuring out sort of like the, the seeds I was planting earlier on how they were going to pay off later. Um, and it wasn't so much figuring out that it was then like, once I got it all down on the page, it was just making like finding all the logical inconsistencies and all the things that didn't agree and all the things that were like, oh, wait, no, but then this happened. But then this completely blows out my model of, of my theory of time travel, of, of how it's like, you know, sort of eternalism. And, and um, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, it was fun. And, and I'm sure someone I, like it's the kind of, I, I just kind of gave up on it at one point And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And if Neil deGrasse Tyson wants to fight me, cause I got the science <laughs> wrong, like, I don't care. I'm done. Um, but, but, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. I can't wait to read it. It sounds fascinating. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'm a little disappointed. I don't already have a copy, Rob. <laughs> Supply chain <laughs> issues. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, you know what? It's at least nice that you have that to say, even if it's not true. Supply chain right now no, is, it actually is a is. nice like, topic. Like, I don't know if you're experiencing this, but like, I, like, I'm trying to get galleys out to people and they're like, yeah, you need to cut this list down a little bit, dude. Like we don't have as many galleys anymore. Right. As many people as possible, like begged, can we please send you a PDF or something like that? Look, Rob's got got the fervor. Yep. Yeah. They only gave me a small handful of them and. They practically vet like who I'll give it to. Yeah, you know? they they gave me like four, and I gave one to my mom, and I'm like, I'm real sorry, but you got to give this back when you're done. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, my mom passed away right before the arcs came out, so I didn't get a chance to show her. You know, a cop. Not she had terrible dementia at the time, so it probably wouldn't have mattered. But yeah, so when you said mother, I was like, nope, sorry, mother didn't even rate on this one. Had <laughs> to go to you know. It really makes us into tough bastards, doesn't it? Wow. Yeah. 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 Again, a cheerful note to end on. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Um, not, no, not at all. It's excellent conversation. And um, I, I just want to reiterate, everybody should, if you haven't read Red Widow yet, 
Um, you should be doing that already. And um, I absolutely love the fervor. I think it's going to be like just a killer success because it's such a, a great story and, and timely and poignant. And there's just so much about it that just works for, for when it's coming out. So um, I want to thank you uh, for also giving me the opportunity to read it in, in advance because apparently I got super lucky. No, thank you. Thank you guys very much. This has been so much fun. Thanks for letting me just babble on. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. This was a blast. All right. What a great discussion with Alma Katsu. And thanks as always to Rob Hart for joining in on this discussion. Again, if you haven't already, Red Widow is an absolute must read. So feel free to pick that up and check it out. And um, I believe pre-orders are going to go live pretty soon for fervor. So keep an eye out for that as well. This is going to wrap up the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, leave us a a rating, a review. It helps us get out there to more people. And uh, please feel free to give feedback on social media. I'm pretty much everywhere. I'm at R-O-B-B-O-L-S-O-N. Or you can also interact with us on the Lit Reactor website. Thanks again for listening. Okay, that was my interview episode with uh, Al Makatsu from the Lit Reactor podcast Unprintable back in 2021. I will have about five more of these episodes coming out uh, in the next you know, few weeks to make sure that we have them archived since Lit Reactor is going dark. What you can look forward to is an interview with um, S.A. Cosby, who is the author of All the Sinners Bleed, Blacktop Wasteland, Razorblade Tears, um, and I, I'm going to get the other one wrong. I think it's All My Darkest Prayers. Uh, fantastic conversation with him about... Razorblade Tears, but also Rob Hart had just released the book Paradox Hotel, and there's a lot of discussion about that book as well. That's coming up. There is my uh, episode where we talk about grammar. There's an episode where we talk about reviewing books. There's an episode where we talk about conducting interviews. And I think I'm going to cap it off with uh, the first one I did for Lit Reactor was a 10-year retrospective with uh, Josh Chaplinski and Rob Hart about Lit Reactor in general. I think that would be a nice way to end things off. There will be more of those coming. In addition to the Lit Reactor episodes that are coming out um, uh, later this week, I'm recording my first of two um, 2024 Looking Ahead episodes with guests Becky Spratford, who is a uh, librarian um, and a huge resource for recommending books and uh, is known as the Horror Maven and a huge resource for just knowing everything about horror. And Emily Hughes, who, in addition to just being in the publishing world for a long time, has been curating a list of upcoming horror books by year for several years now, first for Tor and now on her own website. I got to tell you, there's nobody that exists that's better to have on to look at what's coming up for the following year for, for horror books. So I'm very excited to talk to those folks soon until then um, keep looking out for some new lit reactor and um, are looking forwards. And then back in 2024 for some uh, more author interviews about uh, upcoming books.